Thank you very much, Paul. And I really appreciate the opportunity to give this lecture. And um, welcome to colleagues who've turned out on their lunch break and also to visitors to UCL. Um, welcome to this lecture series. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time this year actually moving. My laboratory used to be in this building, for those of you who live in the neighborhood, the old Windair building on Cleveland Street, which is now under some sort of Christo-like wraps and is being taken down to give, be give, to, um, give birth to a new neuroscience institute. And we've moved into this wonderful building, which is a, um, uh, the new Cancer Institute on Huntley Street. And my laboratory is exactly here on this new building. Now, what myself and my research team do is um, use viruses as gene delivery tools. And I'm going to explain what that means and how we do that. Uh, as Paul said, um, we work on HIV. HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. Um, here is a wonderful color picture of a white blood cell, one of, your, one of someone's white blood cell. Little red dots are HIV viruses budding from the surface of the white blood cell. And the only way we can really see any structure in these viruses is in an electron microscope. And here you can say, see that they're round particles. They have this electron-dense core in the middle. And diagrammatically, this can be um, uh, explained as the viral genome, two copies of the viral genome, surrounded by a protein core, then a fatty envelope around it with proteins sticking out of the envelope. And these proteins are important for docking the virus onto the cells that it's going to infect. Um, as Paul said, it's World AIDS Day today, and HIV is a deadly pathogen. We're now 30 years, approximately, into the pandemic, and there have been some success, as you all know, in developed countries in terms of suppressing virus in people who are infected, and we'll come back to that, because you're never really clear of an HIV infection. But as you also know, in the developing world, it's a very serious um, threat, and it's the main cause of death in young adults in, in many countries. And I think it's hard to imagine, actually. I always find it hard to imagine myself in the position of living in a country in which the HIV pandemic has a full hold. Now, what we work on are using HIV as a new medicine. As a, as, a, as a medical tool. Viruses, and this is a schematic of what the virus does when it attaches to your white blood cell. It attaches to the cell surface, and that little core in the middle is released into the cell, and it undergoes various steps along its highly precise mechanism, and it ends up putting its genetic material into the DNA of the cell. Now, as you all know, DNA, the material of life, sits in all the cells in your body. And the virus actually puts its own DNA into the cell's DNA. Now, this is the thing I was referring to before, in that if you're infected with this virus, you never really lose infection. Because somewhere in your body, there'll be a small number of cells that have this viral DNA integrated and you never get rid of them. The viral antiviral retrovirals suppress replication of the virus, but the virus essentially sits there. And that's why those antiretroviral treatments are so unpleasant, because you have to take them 
essentially lifelong in order to remain well, but living with HIV. However, this property of putting its gene, genes into cell DNA is something that's made it useful as a medical tool. So what we do, and we do this in, I don't know if anybody's ever been into a, a lab where people do molecular biology, but you have small, very tiny tubes, and what you do the whole time is move things between tubes. As you become an aging scientist, actually, it's very hard to see the tubes anymore. And you, you're sort of peering over your glasses, trying to see the pellets of DNA and protein in these very small tubes. But what we do daily is to modify the HIV virus. And what we do is we take out all the viral proteins, or viral uh, genes that encode viral proteins from the genome, and we can put therapeutic genes into these particles. And we can then actually also modify the viral core enzymes, and we can modify the envelope protein so it attaches to different cells or particular cells. And these viruses become a little gene delivery machine. So we're using a property that the virus normally has, putting its genes into cells as a way of delivering genes to cells. So what we do is we wipe out this whole half of the life cycle, which is to do with making new viruses. And we engineer the virus to go into the cell, put the gene that we want to put into cell DNA into the DNA, and then we can use that gene to make therapeutic proteins. Now, I want to tell you one fantastic success story, which was published last year, of using HIV, the virus, as a medicine. And this is a story, actually, that comes from uh, colleagues in this field who work in Paris. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if any of you have seen this, the film Lorenzo's Oil, which is about a truly horrendous disease called adrenoleukodystrophy. And that disease um, is a hereditary condition, and it's a defect in a single protein in your body. And this protein is involved in uptake of one of the body's components, fatty acids, into this little chamber in the cell where fatty acids are recycled. And people with this inherited disorder um, are unable to process these toxic fatty acids. What happens then, by a mechanism that we don't really understand, is that these accumulate in the body, and the worst symptoms, really, are caused by their accumulation in the brain. And when fatty acids accumulate in the brain, they trigger an inflammatory disease which causes the nerve cells to lose this insulation, their myelin sheath. So your nerves are little wires wrapped in this inert material, myelin. And inflammation in the brain, in this disease, causes this to, to stop functioning. So the disease is, is, is hideous, in fact. It's an X-linked disease, so it occurs in young boys around about the age of six. And death usually occurs before they reach adolescence. One of the most distressing features is the horrible neurological symptoms, which mean that they essentially lose um, all cognitive functions as they move towards death. And you can imagine that um, it's, it's very distressing. The Lorenzo's oil was a story of, of um, giving one of these children a different um, uh, uh, type of diet based on different um, natural oils to try to 
lower the concentration of these fatty acids in the body. And it worked for a short time, and the parents really believed it did work, but it's not a long-term cure. Now, what doctors have known for a while about this disease is it can be treated really well by bone marrow transplantation if you have a family member who's a matched donor. But if you don't, bone marrow transplants are very dangerous and essentially not possible. So, this woman, Natalie Cartier, who's a, a neurologist in Paris, very chic French woman and also an excellent dancer. I've seen that with my own eyes. Um, Natalie Cartier, and here she is with one of the patients she treated, engineered a virus to carry the defective transporter gene, and this is an HIV virus, into bone marrow cells. The patients then got a bone marrow transplant with their own bone marrow carrying the corrected gene. And they were followed for a couple of years. They're still being followed, obviously. And she showed treatment of uh, two children. So you can see this is a labor-intensive process, and it's a rare disease. So if we're talking about global benefit, the numbers are small, but the outcomes are, are amazing. So these are the brain scans of the children that were treated. And these are early brain scans. And a normal child through this time series progresses with these big white areas, which are where the myelin has been lost from the nerves in the brain. And you can see these two children who are treated with gene therapy are essentially showing small symptoms, but not this terrible progressive disease. And the paper says that the two patients had some small decline in motor function, but really um, didn't have any of the, the horrendous cognitive and, ne and, and neurological defects that those children normal, normally get. And this world of gene therapy, which I think everyone thought was maybe slightly frightening, very ineffectual, and a bit hyped, is now becoming a reality. Um, and there are ongoing therapeutic trials for gene therapy for, for example, children with beta thalassemia, which is, as you, you, you probably know, is a red blood cell disorder, which is, again, um, very unpleasant. Um, can be cured to some extent by blood transfusion, but, but unple an unpleasant disease. Um, our own Institute for Child Health here at UCL, in collaboration with Great Ormond Street Hospital, is treating, with a modified HIV virus, um, a rare immune deficiency syndrome, one of those uh, diseases where children can't mount an immune response to normal um, infectious agents. And there is a trial, um, again, in, in Paris, in fact, for Parkinson's disease using a related virus, not a human virus. This one is a horse um, virus, which has been modified to take out its genes and put in a single therapeutic gene. So I think this therapy is suitable in any situation where you can deliver enough of the virus to the tissue, either outside the patient in terms of a bone marrow transplant, or directly in the patient in terms, for example, of this Parkinson's disease trial where the virus has been injected into the right, disease, right um, area of the brain. It's not very suitable for treating a genetic disorder where, for example, large numbers of cells in the body might be um, dysfunctional. And we really haven't got very far with some of those single gene inherited disorders, which are some of the more common ones, such as cystic fibrosis, where your whole lungs, are, as you know, um, uh, uh, fail to function because of a, a missing uh, gene product, and it's hard to achieve 
efficient gene, love, gene delivery to all the cells in the lungs, or in muscular dystrophy, it's hard to uh, achieve efficient gene delivery to all the muscles in the body. But this therapy is actually a reality and has given clinical benefit in small numbers of patients who have these uh, inherited gene disorders which are suitable for treatment by this, this type of method. Now, um, my lab has been very interested over the last um, five to ten years, in fact, in trying to use the same sort of, of, of technology to make better vaccines. Um, vaccines work by taking a weakened form of a disease antigen that could be, for example, a dead virus or a dead bacterium or a component of a virus or a bacterium and injecting it into the body so the body mounts a reaction. The body mounts a reaction by creating antibodies and often by mobilizing white blood cells called T cells which attack um, infected cells. Then if the pathogen comes back, the body can body's immune system can attack and eliminate it. Now, this principle's been going on for a long time. This is um, Edward Jenner in his cottage in Berkeley on the Severn in Gloucestershire, very near where I grew up. And what Edward Jenner is doing is he's got a milkmaid here, attractive, rather attractive young milkmaid. And he has taken from her arm, from a pustule on her arm, because she's been infected with cowpox, presumably by this cow that's standing just by the cottage door, um, he's taken some of the disgusting secretion from that pustule and he's injecting it into this child. And this is a related virus, the virus that comes from the cow, to the virus that causes smallpox. And um, Edward Jenner, a fantastically intuitive clinician, worked out that this procedure would actually protect these children against smallpox. And this actually became, you know, a valid medical treatment. And the virus was passaged in milkmaids for quite a long time before we got into slightly higher tech me um, mechanisms of making the vaccine. So this is a way of treating children with a live related virus. Now, perhaps fortunately, because not all clinicians have the same wonderful intuition as Edward Jenner, this sort of protocol would be somewhat frowned upon today. And there are, these things are much more highly regulated. This is, I think, a slightly bizarre picture of a nurse showing a polio victim um, that the polio is now cured by <laughs> vaccination. It's slightly cruel, this picture, actually. And um, this, this vaccine was poliovirus grown in the lab and then chemically inactivated to, to, to kill it, injected into, to, um, into um, uh, uh, naive you know, people without polio who are then protected against polio. And these are two diseases um, whose threat worldwide, smallpox has been eradicated. Polio actually remains a threat if you can't vaccinate appropriately. But these are diseases which are now entirely preventable by vaccination. But we have a series of, of diseases now on the, 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 the radar that are actually very um, uh, difficult to treat by vaccination. One of, them, one of them, as you know, is influenza. This comes back every winter with some scare story about terror, terror influenza. HIV itself is very difficult to treat. Both of these viruses vary considerably. So if you vaccinate with one virus, you may not protect very effectively against subsequent um, uh, infection with a slightly different virus. 
And again, HIV, as I said, is a double whammy because it's also a persistent virus. So one thing you might want to do with a vaccine, actually, is to treat somebody who's already infected in order to get the immune system to eliminate the virus that's in the body, and that's difficult. That's a problem with HIV. That's also a problem with hepatitis viruses. And it's a problem with TB, tuberculosis, which is a persistent infection. And we have some uh, pathogens who are too complicated for me even to think about, which are parasites such as malaria or intracellular um, uh, uh, organisms like leishmania. So we still need better vaccine technology. And this is an immunology slide because I can see some immunologists in the audience, but don't worry about this, people who really don't want to gather with this. When you have a vaccine injected into your arm, the most important thing is what happens to these little bits of either virus, dead virus, live virus. And what you really need is something called an antigen-presenting cell. This cell needs to eat up the vaccine and then display it in an effective way to the immune system. And that's why some vaccines work, some vaccines don't work, and why people worry a lot about how to design a vaccine. And this antigen-presenting cell, which is the thing that my lab and I obsess about continuously, are um, eating up the antigen, they're stimulating T cells, they're also involved in the stimulation of B cells, which make antibodies. These antibodies attack pathogens, they bind to the surface of the pathogen, and the T cells are required for killing infected cells, for example, HIV infected cells. So how the antigen first is taken up by the immune system is one of the most important steps in vaccination. There's no good just whamming loads of stuff into someone's arm. It doesn't work. For those of you who find that difficult, this is Heston Blumenthal. I really like this. He's obviously thought a lot about presentation. Here's his presentation with the antigen-presenting cell, the antibodies, the B cell, the T cells, and these little molecules are cytokines which are floating around and stimulating the whole, the whole um, uh, uh, gamish of, of, of the immune system. So antigen presentation is critical. Now, why we started thinking that HIV would be good for um, vaccination is the virus itself actually hitchhikes onto these antigen-presenting cells. One of its features of its life cycle is it, it, it's, um, it, it, it's very uh, efficient in, in, in infecting these cells. And um, these cells, for example, in the skin, migrate into lymph nodes and then stimulate your immune system. And um, because HIV does this itself, we figured it might be quite good at immunizing if we could get rid of the viral proteins, which I told you we could do. And we also don't have any pre-existing immunity to HIV if we change the envelope on the surface for a virus that we've never seen before as humans. So it's coming back a little bit to someone like Jenner, because now pox viruses, the sort of viruses he used straight from the milkmaid, have also, like HIV, been engineered, and they can be used to carry foreign antigens into the immune system as can adenovirus, which is a common cold virus, which is, again, being engineered to carry antigens from other pathogens into the immune system. And um, so we've been developing this idea around HIV. And what we realized as well 
is that because the virus is sitting here in the antigen-presenting cell, we could actually change the behavior of this antigen-presenting cell. We could activate pathways in the cell that might make it more effective at triggering the immune system. So this is a dendritic cell, one of these antigen-presenting cells. This is a white blood cell contacting that antigen-presenting cell. And when you look down the microscope, what you don't see is a little molecular bridge here between the two cells composed of a number of different molecules which are critical for this cell, the antigen-presenting cell, to stimulate and activate this cell, the T cell. This antigen-presenting cell also needs to make these little proteins which are important for the... Those are the small dots of pepper on the Heston Blumenthal. These are the little proteins that are important for triggering the immune system as well. And what normal microbes do, pathogens um, uh, like uh, you know, bacteria or whatever, is they trigger receptors on these antigen-presenting cells to stimulate this signaling pathway. And so Helen Rowe, who was a PhD student in my lab, had the good idea that we might actually be able to deliver an antigen together with something that would stimulate this signaling pathway using HIV as a delivery vehicle. And what she did was she found a viral protein which we know constitutively binds to and activates this kinase that's critical for activating that signaling pathway. And she expressed this activating protein together with a, a, a protein from influenza, nuclear protein. And she found that indeed we did get all these wonderful features of antigen-presenting cell stimulation that we were hoping for from this strategy. Now, Doug McDonald in my group then went on to test this signaling activator plus nuclear protein as a vaccine for influenza. And what he did was to immunize mice subcutaneously and then after a couple of weeks to come back and he found the most effective, and I'll show you in a moment, was an intranasal immunization following the subcutaneous immunization. Intranasal vaccines are becoming very um, uh, uh, exciting for pulmonary disease because it seems you can have an immune response um, in your lungs if you immunize um, intranasally. And he then challenged the mice with an infectious influenza and um, became a very good mouse physician and um, uh, uh, tended to them over the next three weeks. And what I show you is that if you vaccinate twice subcutaneously, you can protect the mice against um, a, 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 a lot of the symptoms of influenza, but what you can't remove is this awful thing you always get with flu, where you feel very ill and you don't eat, and the mice have the same symptoms, and they lose quite a bit of their body weight. But if he does a subcutaneous immunization and then follows it with this intranasal immunization, the mice show no clinical signs at all, and they remain healthy um, during the uh, uh, following weeks. And um, we found this was a very good way of, of protecting against influenza because this also protects against different strains of flu. So one of the things we've, come, we've, we've, we've um, actually achieved is something that gives cross-protection against unrelated influenza viruses or very weakly related influenza viruses. And so we think this is actually quite an exciting strategy for um, antiviral vaccines. And my lab's done a number of these things, fiddling with the signaling in this cell to either make cells that 
damp down an immune response, and these we think could be useful for treating autoimmune diseases, and we've also looked at different ways of upregulating an immune response uh, to increase our uh, friends, the T cells that are important for eliminating pathogens. Now, I've already told you that HIV integrates into the genome, and you can see that might not be a great thing for a vaccine. That's a thing that's worrying us a bit, because what you don't want is a vaccine to persist forever. Um, a, it might be toxic to your own DNA a little bit, or B, it might actually, uh, if it sticks around, it might not, uh, the, the immune response might just get tired and give up, basically. So what we've done is we've engineered the HIV so it doesn't integrate anymore, and we've modified the genome, and we've modified one of the proteins, and then what happens is you get the virus sitting in the, DNA, in the cell um, uh, as a circular bit of DNA expressing its genes and not integrating, and that makes it much more safer and useful as a vaccine approach. And Kasia Karvash, who is a graduate student, showed that these very highly um, modified non-integrating viruses still give you this particular parameter of the immune response and others, though you need a higher dose to do that, and that might bring some problems. So, what I think I've told you is that HIV can be engineered to remove viral genes, and it can and has been used and will continue to be used for treating monogenic disorders where a single gene defect, we know what the defect is, and we can treat it now. There are a subset of those diseases which are suitable for this type of treatment, and it does allow us to make some use of the information that's coming out of the human genome, where I predict in the next three to four years, every single inherited genetic disorder will be known, will know what the gene for it is, and a subset of those will be suitable for treatment by gene therapy, which is good because it gives us some basis of hope from understanding genetic disorders. Now, in my lab, we hope to use it as a vaccine. I'm very proud of this. This is a very small manufacturing plant that we built in Huntley Street. This is a, this is a flattering photo um, because we're actually standing in the plant and the back wall is over there, so it's not very large. But this has been given, licensed by the, the, the uh, regulatory agencies in the UK, and it will allow us to make small batches of virus to test, for example, as vaccines or as genetic therapies um, in an academic setting, which is very important because some of these projects take such a long time that it's hard to get pharmaceutical companies to buy into all the optimization studies that you'd like to do in order to make something useful in the clinic. And these are the present members of my lab in bold type who are working with me and some past members who did much of this work. We collaborate with people at UCL and we've been funded by these people. Uh, thank you, Mary. That was remarkable. I, uh, the, the, I think it's the first time that I've heard anyone speaks so positively and so excited about HIV. <laughs> it's a very positive presentation. Um, before we begin the question, I just have a very quick question for you. The, the mice, when you were looking at their weight loss uh, or lack of it, did you ask them, actually ask them how they felt? They have a, we have a clinical score, actually. Doug's got very into this. It's to do with grooming and posture. Right. Which makes me laugh slightly because he doesn't always groom as well as he might do. <laughs> Especially when he has flu. So it's sort of, yeah. So we, we have time for 
quite a number of questions. And so, who would like to begin? We have a young gentleman here. We need to use the microphone. Don't, thank you. Uh, thank you. Very interesting talk. Um, uh, quick question. Uh, you were talking about the um, how you can actually modify HMV to change uh, the, the various um, bits which attack uh, attackers in the body. Um, could you not do the same to immunize against uh, HIV itself? Um, that's a, a good question. Um, in fact, we have thought of that. The, one of the problems of achieving that is we need to really put in, um, because HIV is a very difficult target, and I think a little harder than influenza, we need to put back quite a number of the HIV proteins in order to get a sort of immune response against various steps in the viral life cycle. So the engineering stages of that are a bit more difficult, but we have thought about that. And that sort of converges, actually, from the old ideas of killed viruses or viruses that were attenuated by passage in culture to us engineering HIV to combat itself. So it's, it's, a, it's an old idea with a sort of new tools. I think it's a good idea. Gentleman in the middle here. Um, hi there. Um, we've been hearing a lot recently on the news about antibiotic action and the fact that antibiotics are now becoming, um, well, essentially useless because of the amount of resistance out there. Would you be able to engineer viruses to uh, combat bacterial infections as well? I think that's a really good idea as well, actually. Um, the world of bacterial vaccines is very small. I remember looking on one of these databases of publications a few years ago. And the number of publications on that is tiny because I think the industry sort of assumed bacteria were solved by antibiotics. And that field didn't really gain much um, uh, momentum. Now people are coming back quite a lot to think about, um, particularly for tuberculosis. Um, but I think actually there is also potential for other bacteria. So I, I think it's a, it's a great idea. One of the things we, we need to think about with that is... Um, it's, it's slightly complicated in terms of what sort of response you'd want. And it's not clear that viral delivery of vaccines is the best way for bacteria. But bacterial vaccines in general would be a, would be a terrific idea and would stop this very small mutation, allowing you to evade the whole thing. We have a lady at the back here. Uh, just now you said that HIV can be used for mono, uh, treating monogenic disorder. Why it is only for monogenic disorder? Um, can you please explain? I think there are two issues. If you know what the defective gene is and you can put a correct copy of the gene back and you can demonstrate clinical benefit, then that's very simple and you know that the treatment has worked. There are a number of other ideas to treat more complex diseases, such as autoimmune diseases or cancer, by delivery of molecules that you think may be helpful. Okay? And in that case, uh, the water is a little more unclear because you don't know that, your ex that, that, that that design of experiment will ever work. Okay? So I think what I'm showing you are the clearest examples where you've put back a single gene that you know is missing. You've put it back, and the patient is recovered. 
those approaches are being used for more complex disorders, but I don't think myself that there's such convincing evidence at the moment that patients have actually benefited. There it becomes like a slightly more complex drug delivery system um, where you can put genes into cells instead of delivering molecules. And the jury is still out on whether any of those uh, uh, gene therapy treatments are um, as effective or more effective than small molecules. So the gene replacement for monogenic disorders is the clearest evidence, I would say. I, I think I saw a gentleman here. There we go. Um, earlier on, you were talking about um, the, um, gene therapy, where you sort of insert genes via um, HIV. Um, for my basic understanding of um, genetics, that what you're basically doing is um, adding information that will, um, at the end, produce proteins that will be expressed by cells. Yep. But those proteins are not normally found in the, like the cells in our body. Would that cause sort of an autoimmune response? That's a very good question, actually. So, um, so, do you have any? Yeah. So, some of these patients, um, in some of the trials, what people have done is to select patients who have a mutated form of those proteins, but still have the protein is still present, um, because there has been that fear that if a patient completely lacks the protein, when you put the normal protein back, um, the cells will just be attacked by the immune system. Um, it's actually brought us to quite a complicated field of research because it turns out that's not as straightforward as it might appear, and it depends a bit in which cells you express the protein. So, for example, uh, current ongoing trials um, for gene therapy for um, uh, um, hemophilia, uh, they started with patients who had some fraction of the protein present, and uh, it worked, and they're now thinking of also looking at patients who don't have the protein, but giving transient immune suppression during the time that the, pro the gene is delivered. So I think um, what you end up with is coming up with some sort of more complicated transplant therapies, a bit like the early days of tissue transplantation, only now sort of gene transplantation, in order to overcome those problems. But that's a very good question. Um, one gentleman here. You mentioned that with the uh, HIV delivery vector that it would have to be like localized to the brain tissue or maybe to the lungs and that it wouldn't be suitable for a kind of systemic approach. Why is that? It's a manufacturing problem. It's very hard to make enough virus to do that. So um, that's another thing we're trying to work on is how to produce more because we're, we're, we're dose limited at the moment. It's also not very robust for concentration. Um, we're just bringing the microphone over um, a gentleman and a lady together <laughs> who might wish to speak separately. Um, I was wondering, how do you target the gene insertion so that it's not dangerous to cause any cancer or anything like that? Good question. So, um, in, oh, really? in, is that your, in, in, in um, we can't do that yet, okay? So, in these children, there is a small but real risk that they will develop cancer later on from the gene insertion, okay? And I think that, as any therapy, the benefits outweigh the risks in these really horrendous genetic disorders because the children would have been dead, they're still alive, so this is very good. 
um, there is a risk of, of damage to the genome, absolutely. Um, and there is program of research on how to target the integration to, to non-harmful sites, and also our approach of not integrating, if that could work. And those are exactly to combat that problem. We have time for one last question, and the gentleman here. Hi. Um, my question is about the HIV itself. So if the main handicap to treat the HIV or for having a um, vaccination against the virus is um, that the virus itself evolves or if there are any different types. Um, why is it not possible like in, for influenza that is also changed through the time? And if so, why there are other viruses that doesn't change anymore, like polio, that we have the vaccination and we don't need to take. So with um, influenza, the protein we chose is a, is a protein called nuclear protein, which is very much conserved between all the different types of influenza. Um, for HIV, even with the internal proteins, there's quite a bit of variability. And we've already got, in the pandemic, a number of very different types of HIV circulating. So the variation in HIV, even in the intracellular proteins, is much bigger than in influenza. Polio is very invariant, so that's one of the reasons it was so easy to vaccinate. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a level of variation problem. 